The following episode of Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show was recorded before the writer's strike began. Our guest is in full support of the strike and stands in solidarity with the effort of fellow writers in their fight for fair wages and protections. Hi, this is Spin Monster here, and you're listening to a podcast when nostalgia comes alive. It's Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show. What a cheeky pop! Welcome to Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show, the podcast where nostalgia comes alive. Since July of 2021, Jake and his friends have interviewed professionals in the worlds of acting, directing, writing, puppeteering, and many more. Who will they be chatting with in this week's interview? Find out in this Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show episode. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Jake's Happy Nostar Show, where Nostalgia comes alive. I'm your host, Jake Duffenbaum, and today, as always, our co-host, Chris Bixby, and Matt Bingo. How you guys doing? Doing good. Good. Hello, everybody. How you doing? It's great here. I'm doing great. As always, Chris, what do we have for today? I guess for today, he, uh, a lot of his work, uh, you may know some of the Disney Channel movies that he wrote. Uh, some of his most notable ones, including the Xenon movies, um, True Confessions, Got to Kick It Up, a number of uh, number of other movies for Disney. He worked on uh, Toot and Puddle, uh, Harold and the Purple Crown, a whole bunch of other things that we're going to get into. And here he is, Stu Krieger. Stu, happy to have you here. A pleasure to be here. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Happy to have you. Happy to have you here. So mm-hmm. to start the interview off, uh, could you tell our audience a bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I grew up in Rochester, New York, with absolutely no connection to the entertainment industry, but decided at a very early age that I wanted to be in, a Los, in Los Angeles and wanted to try my hand as a career as a screen and television writer. Uh, so moved out shortly after college, did the typical work and odd jobs until I could get an agent. The agent got me my first writing job. And then I had a 30 plus year as a film and television writer before I made a turn to academia in 2006, teaching film and television writing at the University of California, Riverside, where I am now a full tenured professor and author of a new book that just came out at the end of April called Raft. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. So what made you want to get into writing? You know, it's one of those things I've been asked in other interviews, and it's very hard to define because it was something that felt so innate and early on directed. Uh, My family made a trip to Los Angeles when I was 12 years old. And when we were here, it was like, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I belong. As soon as I have my own ability to make decisions, I will be back and graduated college at 21 and moved to L.A. and started doing everything I needed to do to make the writing career happen. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So was writing something you always wanted to pursue? Pretty much. At the very, very like first, second, third grade, I thought maybe I wanted to be an actor. And as a young kid, I had very, very flaming red hair and used to get a lot of attention for that. And it was like, yeah, I could do Disney movies. But, you know, always had a pension for Disney movies myself growing up. And at one point, once my career had kind of taken off, a college friend was here in L.A. visiting and he said, when you were a little kid in Rochester, New York, did you ever think you would grow up and write Disney movies? And I said, yeah, actually, I kind of did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what were some of your, because uh, you mentioned, you know, watching Disney movies growing up, what were some of your favorites? 
Uh, I was of the classic era, so things like the original Parent Trap with Haley Mills, The Absent-Minded Professor, Swiss Family Robinson, a lot of those classics that are still in rotation on the Disney Channel were the movies that I grew up on and kind of inspired me and informed a lot of the work I ended up doing at the Disney Channel, which was that combination of family stories that always had some element of wish fulfillment as a kid of, you know, boy, wouldn't it be neat to get shipwrecked on an island and build this bits and tree house or, you know, wouldn't it be neat to have a flying car or find out you had a twin you didn't know or just, you know, all of those elements of those movies of wish fulfillment were things that I was thinking about when I was writing the decoms that I did. Right. Right. So now working as a writer, do you remember your very first professional writing gig? The first time I got paid as a screenwriter uh, was on a movie that is most notable for it's the place that I met my girlfriend who has now been my wife for 42 years. Uh, oh, oh. So that, that was a low budget horror movie called Satan's Cheerleaders, which I'm sure you all have in your video library. Um uh, <laughs> But on that film was being produced by a fellow who had hired me to write a screenplay for him. So that script that became the movie called Goodbye, Franklin High was the first check I ever got that you are a screenwriter. Look, you've been paid. And then on Satan's Cheerleaders, which I mentioned he was also producing, he said, we need the script to, like a polished rewrite. But then also, why don't you work as a production assistant? Because it'll give you some onset experience, which I hadn't had. So I worked in both capacities on Satan's Cheerleaders. And like I said, most memorable because it's where I met my wife. Uh, uh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Mm. Now, speaking of movies, one of the movies you're most known for working on is writing the screenplay for the 1988 classic, The Land Before Time. Yes, sir. The first one, the first yeah. one specifically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because there have been so many. What was it like working yeah. on this timeless classic? Mm -hmm. um, well, first of all, when you are in the middle of it, you never know you are creating a timeless classic. Mm -mm. Uh, right. So, But part of the evolution of how that happened was I was working on Amazing Stories, which was Steven Spielberg's first entree into television. And I wrote a couple episodes that he really liked, and then he hired me to not only write a couple more, but also be part of a story editing panel he put together for season two. And that included people like Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who did the Back to the Future series and many other films, Menno Mages, who had written The Color Purple, Jay Cox, who was a critic for Time magazine. They were all part of the story panel that Stephen asked me to be a part of. And when I was working on that, his head of development came to me one afternoon and said, can you hang around after the meeting? We have something we want to talk to you about. And she said, Stephen and I were having a conversation a couple nights ago, and we both feel like you've been become an even stronger writer since you've become a dad. My son was about a year and a half old at that point. And they said, Stephen's always had a Stephen and George Lucas have always had an idea for an animated dinosaur movie they want to do. Would you like to write it for them? And as I have said in many other interviews, when somebody says Spielberg and Lucas have a movie they want you to write, you say yes. You don't ask a lot of questions. You don't ask how much you're going to be paid. You say yes, and then you figure out everything after that. So that was the yeah. beginning of it. And then uh, I don't know how much you guys know about kind of the process of animation, but what happens is the script is in fairly good shape. The voice actors get recorded, and then the animators do their final pass because it's easier to animate to the voices than the other way around. So yeah. altogether, mm -hmm. that process for me was about two years that I was working on the film. And, you know, undergoing constant rewrites, 
revisions, recasting, uh, sitting at a table with Spielberg. George Lucas was most often up on Lucas Ranch, so he would be the little squawk box voice on the table. And then Don Bluth, who was the director, his producing partner, John Pomeroy, uh, Stephen's part producing partners, Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall, all together working on the script until it got to the place everybody was happy with. Nice. So I, I love yeah, absolutely. I love, yeah, Land Before Time is definitely a movie I grew up uh watching when I was a kid. It's a really good movie. Nice and thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So over the years you also wrote a number of movies for Disney Channel, also known as Disney Channel Original Movies. How, how did you begin writing for Disney? Uh, the first thing I did for them for the Disney Channel was before uh, DCOMs existed. So DCOMs became the Disney Channel original movies. But before that franchise was invented, I actually did a sequel to The Parent Trap, which was one of my most exciting and favorite jobs. Because like I said, having been such a just crazy fan of the original and a crazy fan of Haley Mills, at one point when I was a teenager, there was a wall over my bed just papered with pictures of her from fan magazines. And so when I found out they were doing a sequel that she was going to star in, I basically said to my agent, call them and tell them I will pay them if I can do this job. They don't even have to pay me. Uh, didn't quite work out that way. I actually did get paid. Um, but after a script came in that they weren't happy with, they brought me in. I pitched my take on it. They hired me. Uh, I wrote it and then got to go to Florida where it was filming and meet my hero, Haley Mills. And that was in 1986, and we have been friends ever since. Still see each other when either she's in L.A. or I'm in England. Um, and so that was a movie that I did for the channel, like I said, before the franchise existed. That was a success for them. Then I did a movie that ended up both on ABC, the Disney show that was on ABC Sunday evenings, and on the Disney channel that was a remake of Freaky Friday, but it was the version that starred Shelley Long and Gabby Hoffman before the Jamie Lee Curtis, Lindsay Lohan version. And so when the DCOMs were happening, they already knew me. I had done two movies with them. The movies were successful for them. And Xenon was based on a pretty thin kid's picture book. And the producers of that called me in and said, we've met with a whole bunch of writers already. Nobody quite has the take that we're excited about. Tell us what you would do, how you would adapt the Xenon picture book. And I don't know if you guys are aware of an old classic kids book called Eloise at the Plaza. Oh, yeah, was, of course. Yeah. yeah. And that was about a very impish, so. mischievous yeah. kid who lived at the Plaza Hotel in New York. Mm. And what I pitched to them is I said, it's Eloise at the Plaza on a space station. And they went, bam, that's a Disney Channel movie you're hired. So, <laughs> so that started my relationship with them. And then part of why, um, I've told this before, but they had a party celebrating the first 50 DCOMs and I had written 10 of them. So that was a pretty good batting average. Uh, and I think part of what how that relationship evolved the way it did was because they were premiering a movie a month. If you guys remember when you were kids, it was like every Friday night, the first Friday of the month was a new Disney Channel movie. So there was an incredible yeah. turnover. You know, they were making one movie after the other. And I was somebody that they knew they could depend on. I understood the franchise. If they said they needed a script in three weeks, they got it in three weeks. And I think that combination of knowing who they were and the dependability to deliver really cemented my relationship with them. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I, 
I definitely say so. Now I'm curious, do you have any favorite movies that you got to write for for Disney Channel in terms of the decoms? Yeah, Xenon is up there because what was so much fun about it was, like I said, the picture book was pretty thin and the elements that remained from it to the final film was Xenon was a kid on the space station with a best friend named Nebula and a crush on a rock star named Protozoa. And just about everything else in terms of the plot of it, the mischief of it, the you know guys from the corporation coming up and her having to figure out what they were really up to, all of that was stuff I invented. But also all of the language, which is now still being quoted all over the place with Cetus Lapidus and you know, it's a problem major and a problem minor. And all of that slang was stuff that I invented. And there's something really fun and really gratifying to hear now, 30 years later, kids still, still referencing that slang and talking about how they used it. And, you know, just a lot of fun to do. So that was one of my favorites. And then on Smart House, I was the last. Oh, yes. Um, but there was a version of the script that existed before me. And what Disney said is, you know, we really like the concept. We like the basic structure of it. We like a lot of the mechanics of the house, but we don't feel the emotional arcs of the characters are as strong as they could be. And that's really what we're looking for for you. And it felt like for me, that's another, well, this, this is a story I have told often, which was when they then subsequently held a party celebrating the first hundred Disney Channel movies, the, Gary Marsh, who was the head of the channel at the time, said, when people talk about the decons, they assume that people are most interested in hearing about the High School Musical series. And he said, it's actually not true. Most often people want to talk to me about either Xenon or Smart House. And I went, yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, that yeah. was cool. Yeah, Xenon and Smart House are definitely some of my other favorites. Another uh, favorite of mine that I remember watching as a kid that you uh, wrote was uh, Gotta Kick It Up. Yes. Yep. That's a great one. Yeah, and, and another one that was very satisfying for me was Phantom of the Megaplex. And oh, yeah. part, the fun of that was that existed because the head of the Disney Channel movies, who was Michael Healy, came to me and he said, I have a title, but I have no idea what the movie is. And he said, I just woke up with Phantom of the Megaplex in my head. Come back next week and pitch me, you know, take what the movie would be. So I did, and he did, and we made it. So that was another one that I got to be involved in from, I got a title, buddy, come back and tell me the story. So that was a fun process. Nice. And one of the, one of the other movies you uh, wrote that I also really loved was uh, True Confessions, which yeah. uh, co-stars Shia LaBeouf mm -hmm. as an autistic teen. Uh, so what, what kind of goes into writing for a movie revolving around, you know, that kind of a topic? Yeah. Uh, it was based on a novel and, th and this was another really interesting kind of instructive thing that I talk to my students about a lot now because uh, a producer brought me the book and she said, I know you have a relationship with the channel. It seems perfect for them. Do you want to go in? You know, she would produce, I would write it. Do you want to go in and pitch to the studio? And so when I called my contacts there, they said, just so you know, two other writers, uh, two other different sets of writers over the last couple of years have brought us the book and we passed on it. But because of our relationship with you, we'd love to hear your take on it. Come on in. And when I went in and pitched it, they kind of responded to the take and how I was going to approach it. But then they also said they made the connection of Shia was still doing even Stevens at the time. And they said, he's got a hiatus coming up. We've been looking for a movie for him. This might be perfect because it would stretch his abilities and all the rest of it. 
So part of what happens for me personally as a writer on a project like that is you feel a very strong responsibility to get it right. You know, so I didn't want to rely on cliches. I didn't want to be disrespectful to any of the uh, disabled characters in the piece. And so the producer and I went and we did some research. We found a home for autistic kids in L.A. and went and spent a day with them and talked to them about different experiences. Got to sit in the back of a couple of classrooms and just observe them. And, you know, I'm furiously scribbling notes of just, again, wanting to make sure I was being true and fair and fully dimensional to these characters so they didn't become stereotypes and cliches. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Right. Very, very important. Uh, now, as mm -hmm. a lot of what we see nowadays focuses on a lot of diversity and inclusion, what are your thoughts about this kind of thing and representation in the media these days? I think it's phenomenally important and a really exciting evolution. Uh, but one of the things I will say, and it's been interesting, as there's been this rebirth of interest in my films, largely based on when Disney Plus came into existence, they were all back in rotation and a whole new generation has been discovering them. And one of the things, as someone who's now been teaching for almost 20 years, is I'll frequently get emails or texts from people going, former students said, hey, look what I'm doing. And they're sitting with their kids and now watching the movies you know, that they grew uh -huh. up and sharing. And uh -huh. that's really cool. So I, I think, you know, one of the things I've been very proud of in going back and looking at some of the movies I hadn't seen in 15 or 20 years is we did a pretty good job in terms of that kind of diversity and representation being in those films, even before it was trendy, I guess. You know, I, I don't mean disrespectful, but it wasn't there wasn't the heightened awareness there is now. And, and I feel like when I'm looking at the ensemble of those films and, you know, who the, how the casts were comprised, there was a decent amount of both, you know, just ethnic and gender and disabilities and all the rest of it representation in those movies in a way that feels pretty progressive. Definitely. So going back to uh, the Xenon movies a little bit, can you share any of your uh, memories? Can you share any memories from working on uh, those three movies? Sure. Um one of the best and most fun things about being a writer is, you know, it all starts with a blank computer screen and you're just typing away and creating. And, and I'm a really visual writer in terms of when I'm writing, I'm in it. I can see the space station. I can see the layout. I know what it looks like <laughs> looking out her bedroom window. That all becomes very real to me. Right. But then the first day you get to walk onto a set. And it's like, whoa, it actually looks like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember, you know, oh they gosh, shot, that's amazing. Yeah. And they shot the first scene on up in Vancouver and I got flown up for the table read and the rehearsals and all the rest of it. And the first day I was there, it's, you know, come meet Kirsten, who's playing Xenon, come meet Raven, who's playing Nebula. And then the producer said, you want to walk through the space station? It's like, yeah, I do. And it was all on like two sound stages connected. So you're in the classroom and you're walking through the classroom to the meeting room and you're walking through the meeting room into Xenon's, you know, apartment where her family lived at their little apartment. And you're just looking around going, damn, you know, this looks like a whole lot like it looked in my imagination. And now it's all here. And there's a hundred people mm -hmm. running around hanging lights and getting ready to shoot. And that's pretty cool. Like, it seems like your like, creation, like too live, you know, it's just yeah. like, yeah. what? Oh it's yeah. Just, yeah. unbelievable and, and it was a similar experience the first day i got to visit smart house and you walk in and it's like 
it's the smart house. And some people, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're projecting the big screens behind the kids in their bedrooms and the kitchen has got the blender that rises up and is making the smoothies and stuff. And it's all when it's suddenly real and tactile and three dimensional, it's kind of like, wow. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it never gets old. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So moving on from Disney, you also developed to Impala when it became a you know, TV series. How did that come about? Um, that was a project that was also, you had mentioned in the opening that I worked on the TV adaptation of Harold and the Purple Crayon. And so that was an HBO kids show. And then with Toot and Puddle, the same producers were involved initially. So they called me up and said, we got this other project now it was not set up at that point, which meant they had the option to the books to develop, but it was, it didn't have a home yet. So right. they said, let's continue to develop it a little bit with you attached. And then we'll go out to networks and pitch. And ultimately we got it set up at Nickelodeon and then Nickelodeon partnered with Treehouse, which was a Canadian production company. And we were picked up for 26 episodes. And so working out the fact that, you know, how that show was structured, it was two pig best friends and one liked to travel and one liked to be at home. And mm -hmm. so yeah, kind of the concept that we pitched to Nickelodeon that they responded to was each half hour would be made of one episode of a stay at home adventure and one episode of a travel it, adventure. A travel adventure. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that's what they responded to. And then the really fun thing was just thinking about places that I had either been or had an interest in knowing more about and, uh, there's a play. My daughter was going to school at UC Santa Cruz at the time. And to get there, you have to go through Castroville and Castroville was the artichoke capital of the world. And they had like, a, you know, a restaurant shaped like an artichoke and they had artichoke statues and an artichoke festival. And so there's a toot and puddle episode set in Castroville, California, <laughs> just because it was a place that I thought was quirky and interesting. And, you know, like I said, had to drive through every time we took my daughter to and from college. And Toot and Puddle went to Gastroville. Nice. Wow, that's <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah. I remember watching Toot and Puddle. It's it's an awesome show. Oh yeah, yeah, same. Yep, terrific show. Um, on the subject of animated series, what was it like writing for Harold and the Purple Crayon? One of the things that's the most fun about animation, and it was true, you know, with that show with Toot and Puddle at Land Before Time. And then I also did the mm -hmm. Troll of Central Park with John Bluth. And so with all of those animated projects, the fun is you are as liberated as your imagination, because when you're doing live action, you always have to have some part of your brain thinking about the budget of, okay, we suddenly have a flying pirate ship, or we have, you know, an elephant ride, or we have this or that, how much is that going to cost? And is it realistic that we can do it? And with animation, it's like, if you can dream it, you can do it because it doesn't cost any more to have a flying elephant than an elephant that walks along the ground, you know? So all, with all of those projects, and then particularly Harold, because it is so imagination-based, if you know the books at all, it's just the guy with this crayon who draws his fantasies and gets off on these adventures because he's drawing. That was another just really wonderful thing about where does Harold want to go? What's the wish fulfillment yeah. image of this show? And you can do it. Awesome. Yeah. Harold, Harold and the Purple Crayon, you know, even though it didn't run for very long, it's a good show. I actually have a DVD of it somewhere that nice. has like all the episodes. Yeah. 
So aside from uh, writing for TV and film, you've also written a few books. Can you talk a bit about your work as an author? Yeah, kind of how that evolved. And, and I feel one of the things I've been a big advocate is kind of trusting your gut and really tuning into what the universe is telling you in any given time. And so for me, with each of the segues from, you know, like I said, coming out at 21 years old and wanting to be a screenwriter and making that happen. And then when I started teaching first at USC in 2021, I mean, uh, 2001, uh, and then the transition to full-time teaching at Riverside in 2006, all of those felt like really natural evolutions and the next chapter for me. And so with the book writing, when I was doing Toot and Puddle, I had already started teaching at UC Riverside, and it meant I was doing two full-time jobs. And on Toot and Puddle, I was the head writer, the story editor. I wrote nine of the 26 episodes. I story edited the other 15 or whatever. How, math was not my strong suit, but, <laughs> but I, I edited, all the, edited all the rest of them. And suddenly I was wow. working two, two full-time jobs. And so I, at the end of Toot and Puddle, it was just like, I really can't do that anymore. And I don't want to be going out on film and television jobs. Yeah, yeah I, I do the same thing over and you just want, you know, go want to do something else you know yeah, yeah. so yeah. it was you know i really want to focus on the teaching but i am a writer that will always need to write and so when i came up the, with the concept of my first book which was called that one cigarette a historical alternate fiction um part of the appeal was all of my film and television career it was always you know we needed a week from friday we needed to be 90 pages we get you got a deadline you got a page count you got a budget to be aware of. And with the book, it was sort of like, I'm going to write when I have time to write. I'm going to finish it when I finish it. I'm going to research when I can research. So the process of that one cigarette was seven years in the making, but it was very, very uh, kind of career friendly in terms of I could do my teaching. I could take time off in the summer when I needed it and I could write when I could write. So that felt like the, the right direction for my writing career to take at this point in my life. And then with the second book, Raft, which, as I mentioned, just came out at the end of April, uh, that was about three years in the making, but it was two years of writing. And then I got a publisher who was interested. And for the last year up until April, I worked with them with a wonderful editor named Amy Ashby and with the folks at Pipevine Press to get it in the shape that it's in. That Well, as of this morning, we have 26 five-star reviews on Amazon. So I'm very proud of that. And hey. wow. <laughs> wow nice that's, yeah that's and, awesome. and people are responding in the way and, and kind of what's interesting about that book is i have ended up on social media much against my will um but part of it why that happened was when the publisher first approached me about the book a year and a half ago they said what the what well i'll give you the elevator pitch of the book it's the story of clark whitaker who is a children's book author, who's about to turn 50. His son's leaving for college. He's got some career crisis happening. He's having his form of a midlife crisis. He gets in a giant fight with his wife, goes to bed angry, wakes up the next morning, and he's a penguin. And why, <laughs> <laughs> why he turned into a penguin, we do not know. There was no magic involved. There was no wish fulfillment. But the way I pitched it to the publishers, as I said, when having a life crisis, some men leave their wives for a younger woman. Some buy a mountain bike. Clark Whitaker turned into a penguin. The lesson of it is stuff happens. How do you deal with it? So mm -hmm. it becomes a road uh, road movie adventure with his family. Well, not movie. Oops. 
a, a road <laughs> adventure with his family and each of the four members of the family, his wife, son, and daughter all take turns narrating chapters, telling us the story of what happened while dad was a penguin. Uh, so back to the social media entree, the publisher had said, we really feel like the kids who grew up on your movies are now the audience for this book because it's an adult book, but it's kind of got that same fantasy mixed with real life, mixed with family lessons element to it. And the thing that the publisher said that was so gratifying, and I've now heard from several readers saying, I laughed on every page and I cried at the end. And when they said that, it's like, all right, I did my job. You know, <laughs> If I got those two reactions <laughs> out of you, I'm very pleased. Um, so they had said, you know, the fans of your previous work with film and television are the audience for this book, but we have to have a way to reach them. And so I said, well, as a professor in particular, I've avoided social media because I didn't get, want to get into the whole my students and my life and, you know, who did you friend and who didn't you friend and just all of that stuff I wanted to avoid. And they said, well, you can curate your career without curating your life. You know, it doesn't have to be about where you had dinner, where you vacation. It's talking about your films, giving some inside tips, giving some writing advice, giving some backstories and all of that. So I hired two of my students, one former and one current at the time, grad students to work for me. They set it up. They would say, dude, we need you to have a video about this or talk about this or somebody asked this question. We need you to answer it. And I did what they told me. And we went on TikTok and and again, this is all a completely foreign world to me. But the first week we were on TikTok, one of the videos they put up about Land Before Time, the student called me and said, dude, you're blowing up. Check it out. And in a day and a half, we had 2.8 million views on this Oh, video. my gosh. <laughs> wow. What? Mind-blowing. <laughs> that's yeah. insane. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> so, and now, it's, you know, something like 13 and a half million, I mean, 13 and a half thousand followers on TikTok and you know, doing it also on Instagram and just trying to get awareness of Raft out there so people can find it and enjoy it and do what they got to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it it also sounds like a really interesting movie concept now that I think about it. <laughs> it, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. So... So if, is there anything that you can share that, that you're currently working on? Uh, I have an idea for the next book, but it's very, very much in the starting to flesh it out now. Because like I said, the focus really has been on finishing and getting Raft out to the world. And I'm actually on sabbatical from UCR in the fall quarter with the idea of trying to do a book tour promoting Raft. And then I kind of will be able to focus on the new book after that. But that's three dots for the future to be, you know, kind of not ready for revealing, discussing it yet, but, but it is in the very beginning stages. Nice. Looking forward to that. So now what would you like to say to uh, anyone watching or listening who supported the projects you've worked on over the years? You know, kind of the biggest thing I've learned in terms of, I have had an incredible journey and, and sometimes doing interviews like this and having to reflect and think back on the path of my career. I feel so incredibly fortunate, not only for the opportunities I've had, but like right. I said, now, now that I'm still hearing from people 30 years after some of these projects came out about 
either what it meant to them as kids or how they're sharing it with their own families. Or like I said, with Disney Plus, there's now a whole new generation discovering these things. And so kind of my advice to students and advice to anybody that wants to be involved in any kind of creative endeavor is you just got to do it. You just got to, you know, have the faith and have the belief and have the passion to just go out and do it because stuff is happening all the time now. And the advantage that you guys have starting any kind of creative career that I did not is, you know, feature films are getting made on phones and released with national distribution. So sometimes I'll get frustrated with students when they'll come in and they'll say, you know, I need some advice because I want to write and I'm this and I'm that. And I go, you want to write, write, you know, <laughs> you don't, you, you need nothing but a pen and a legal pad. You don't even need a computer. And so anytime somebody comes in and says, I'm a writer. And I say, what are you working on? And they say, I'm not. Then I say, you're not a writer. Writer's write. You know, so it's, if it is something you want to do, it's possible. Careers are made yeah. from short films and YouTube videos. And, you know, there's so many different platforms and so many different ways to get your stuff out there. But first and foremost, yeah. you got to be doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Definitely great advice. So if people would like to, you. if people would like to connect with you, where can people find you? Uh, both the TikTok and Instagram are simply at Stu Krieger. Uh, the book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and most booksellers. If they're not carrying it in the stores yet, if you request it, they can get it for you through Ingram. So Raft is available, TikTok, social, and TikTok and Instagram at Stu Krieger. And otherwise, it's always astonishing to me when somebody finds me through completely different ways that I didn't even know is out there. So I'm not a hard guy to find. <laughs> nice. And links to your social medias will be in the description for people to connect and to you. Goes with some Appreciate it. Piece as well. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and for your new book, once again, called Raft. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So the last... To, to end off the interview, so the question that uh, Jake's about to ask is a question that we ask all of our guests at the end of each interview. All right. Yes, yes, we sure do. So, of course, you know, this podcast is called Jake's Happy Nostalgia. Yes. Yeah, look at that. When you think yeah. of nostalgia, what do you think of, or in your own words, how would you define the word nostalgia? It's so interesting because a while ago, I used to say Restoration Hardware Store was one of those places that was designed to make you for nostalgic for things you never had. <laughs> so for me, it's it's quite the opposite. It's, it really is about those things, particularly as children, because I think what's remarkable to me about my own career and reactions people have had and things that folks want to talk to me about, those years are so important and so formative in terms of how we define the world, how we learn about the world how we learn about relationships and family and all of those things. And so for me, the nostalgic things are, you know, walking past a window and seeing a toy I had as a kid that I forgot I even had and going, oh my God, you know, and then having this incredible <laughs> vivid memory of whether it was a Hanukkah gift and unwrapping it and seeing it or a birthday present. And the same thing, like walking by a video shelf and seeing a DVD of a movie I loved as a kid that I had forgotten about or, being in the car and having the radio on and a song comes on and, Oh my God, that was the night of my first kiss or, you know, whatever those things are. <laughs> but nostalgia for me is all about something that almost on a subconscious level evokes memories and takes you back to a time and a place and a feeling and a relationship that has some kind of incredibly important emotional connection to who you are as an adult. 
Definitely a great word to send on. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Very thank well. You. Thank you for very those well. words. Yes. Yeah. Thank you guys. Yes, Absolutely. Yes, and thank you very much, you know, for what you've done over the years and you know, thank you for for what you've done be a part of our be a part of our lives, you know, and keep up your great work. And I wait what's next in store for you. I appreciate it. Yes, yeah, enjoy, of enjoy the rest of your days too. You too. Be well. You too. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bye bye. It's goodbye from us as well, everyone. Yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, be sure to check out his uh, new book. It's called Raft. It's available from uh, Pipevine Press. Yes. And uh, I heard it's been it's a fantastic book. 26 five-star reviews on Amazon. Not like, them, just wow. Just out in like April. So yes, that's, and I, yes, that's and pretty cool. Do check, do check out the book. Um, yes, as we mentioned just a moment Raft. ago, links to that and uh, Stu's social medias will be in the description down below. Yep, um, but again, this brings another episode of Jake's Happy Solid Show to a close. I absolutely enjoyed our time with Stu Krieger. And, you mm-hmm. know, keep on the lookout for more wonderful episodes. And as always, yep. what do we say, Jake? Keep the Solid Show alive. Take care, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to another wonderful Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show interview. Be sure to follow Jake and the crew on social media and stream the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And as always, remember to keep nostalgia alive. Bye-bye.